Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. The podcast is recording. All right. So, let's see. You click on the presentation. There we go. Uh, If you guys would go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Um, we've been going through this, um, this book for several months now, um, and throughout this study, we've seen the author explain Jesus' greatness over Old Testament people and objects and practices. Now, often, these comparisons were followed by a warning. Now, before the author is ready to finish out this letter, he's got one final warning to give. So that's the title of this morning's sermon, is The Final Warning. Uh, and we're going to find this in uh, chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. The main idea in this passage is don't reject God. Get this out of the way. The main idea here is don't reject God. Uh, We see this uh, broken down into three parts. Uh, This is Jesus' blood speaks. This is the unshaken kingdom. And finally, consuming fire. Again, those three portions are Jesus' blood speaks, unshaken kingdom, and consuming fire. I'm going to pray, and we'll go ahead and get into this text. Dear God, as we open up your word, Father, I pray that you will open our hearts, open our minds, so that we can hear from you. God, I pray that you will transform us into people who reflect your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I'm going to go ahead and start right here in verse 25. He says, See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, Even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. So he says, see to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. Now to understand what the author's talking about, we need to go back to last week's message. I said that last week and this week are really one section of the letter. These two go together like coffee and donuts. Uh, In verses 18 to 24, the author uses the imagery of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion to contrast the old and new covenants. At Mount Sinai... God's words are described as thunder and blasting trumpets, so terrifying that the Israelites begged Moses to be their intermediary so that God would not speak directly to them. Then at Mount Zion, the one who speaks is a little bit unexpected. Now, I skipped over this detail last week, and I really thought that somebody would call me out on it. So let's look back at verse 24. Uh, In verse 24, it's a continuation of a sentence that started back in Uh, 22. So he says, Instead, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. Notice the one here who is speaking. The one that is speaking is Jesus's sprinkled blood. It's not just speaking, though, but it's speaking better things than the blood of Abel. So let's start here with Abel's blood. Way back in Genesis 4, we get to read this story. Adam and Eve had been kicked out of the garden, and they started a family. Their oldest, oldest son, Cain, was a crop farmer, and his younger brother, Abel, became a shepherd. Time passes by, and they go by, or they go to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Cain's offering is rejected, but Abel's is honored by God. Now, there's a lot of debate and discussion as to why Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's was accepted, but whatever the reason was, Cain loathed his brother because of this. And eventually, he murdered him. And then Genesis 4, 9 and 10 is especially pertinent in this passage here in Hebrews. He says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? 
I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, uh, this he is God. Then God said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. See, Abel's blood cries out to God, proving Cain's guilt. It was the proof of his sin. But in Hebrews 12, 24, Jesus' blood says better things than the blood of Abel. Those better things are atonement. Those better things are forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation. Jesus, who was sacrificed on the cross because of our sin. Right? So in one way, Jesus' blood recognizes our guilt, much like uh, Abel's blood cried out uh, Cain's guilt to God. Jesus' blood recognizes our guilt, but more importantly, it pays the penalty of our sin, making atonement for us. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the payment that is required for our debt to be forgiven. Since our sin debt is forgiven, we are freed from our slavery to sin. Since we are no longer slaves to sin, we can be reconciled to God and brought back into perfect relationship with Him. In Hebrews 12.25, when he says, See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks, he's referring to God at Mount Sinai, who is the same God who came to this earth and shed his blood for us. Do not ignore God's message at Mount Sinai. We cannot earn our righteousness on our own because we are sinners. Therefore, we deserve death and eternal punishment in hell. But do not ignore Jesus' message on the cross. God loved us so much that he came down to this earth and shed his own blood to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be reconciled to him. Then he says, For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth. Well, now that sentence is a little bit confusing. So this is referring to the Israelites back when they rejected God's promise after leaving Mount Sinai. This reference came up a few times already, and, and we can chase a couple of different passages to get back to this point. Hebrews 3, 7 through 11 quotes Psalm 95, 7 through 11. So I've got the Psalm passage here. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. God says that because of their rebellion, they were not allowed to enter into the promised land. He had provided for them. He had rescued them out of Egypt, and he had brought them to Mount Sinai and made his covenant with them, and they still doubted his goodness. This psalm refers to the passage, uh, refers to Meribah and Massa. The story behind that is found in Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Like I said, there's a couple of different passages that we're going to chase to get back to this point. So Exodus 17, 1 through 7. It says, the entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us, and I think that should be, why did you even bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while, they will stone me. Then the Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. And when you hit the rock, water will come out of it. 
and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites complained, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? See, here's where we see this pattern beginning to emerge. The Israelites had hinted to it a few times already at this point, but it becomes a regularity. And moving forward, we see it more and more frequently with the Israelites. So God decides to give it a name, Massa and Meribah. Massa means testing, and Meribah means quarreling. It seemed that no matter what God did for them, it was not enough. Forget the fact that, that God had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and, and saved them from Pharaoh's army and provided a safe passage for them through the Red Sea. Forget all that. Forget that, the fact that, that God saved them from Pharaoh's army and they, they doubted God's goodness because they wanted comfort and prosperity. They were thirsty, so they doubted God's goodness. After he had protected them and saved them, they doubted his goodness because they were thirsty. But the point where God promised that the Israelites would not be allowed into the promised land actually came a little bit later. When the Israelites finally got to this promised land, the land that God had promised to their ancestors, they needed to go in and lead a military campaign to, uh, to get the people out who were already living there. God had promised that he would be the one to provide the victory for them. They just needed to go and do it. They needed to trust him in the fight. So they sent spies in to scout the land so that the Israelites could be prepared for the fight. But the report that came back terrified them. Twelve spies went in and witnessed this promised land and saw the people living there. Ten spies, ten of them, who saw, they, they saw opponents who were too big and too scary to fight. Apparently, these opponents that they saw were bigger and scarier than God. But two of them saw God's promised land laid out in front of them, Caleb and Joshua trusted that God would keep his promise. The other ten didn't. They either thought that God couldn't or wouldn't keep his promise to them. So the Israelites as a whole, this whole group, the Israelites decided to believe these ten spies instead of siding with Caleb and Joshua and trusting in God's promise. They chose fear instead of faith. And that's where we pick up Numbers 14.22. None of the men who have seen my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness and, I have, test, uh, sorry, and have tested me ten times and did not obey me will ever see the land I swore to give their ancestors. None of those who have despised me will see it. So we see that because they did not trust in God, that they were cursed or God, God sent them back to, to wander through the wilderness for another 40 years. In Hebrews, when the author says they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, that's what he's talking about. The entire generation who seen God's salvation from Egypt, they saw his promise at Mount Sinai, and they saw his provision through the wilderness, and they still chose to reject God. Because they chose to reject God, they did not enter the promised land. And then if they don't survive, then even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. We look at the Israelites, often I find myself doing this frequently in the Bible, not just the Israelites, but, but the, the disciples too. I look at, at these people and I'm like, what are you doing? Why, why would you do that? You, hear, you have this clear message from God telling you one thing and you choose something else. When we look at the disciples, we see them walking next to Jesus and they still do some pretty dumb things. I say, what are you doing? Come on. I, I definitely wouldn't do that if I was in that position, Right? Well, I don't know, right? In reality, it's even more incredible that somebody would doubt Jesus' salvation now. 
He's not just God speaking to Moses from a cloud, but he is God himself come down from heaven to reveal God's plan of salvation for us. He shed his blood for us. It is his blood that speaks to us. It is his blood that warns us. If the Israelites rejected God during Moses' time and were punished, then we're even more guilty if we reject Jesus' sacrifice and we will surely be punished. There is no escape. You're either trusting in Jesus or you're guilty and you will be punished. Now, here's, here's the gut check point here, all right? Remember, this letter, this letter is not written to lost people. This letter is not an evangelistic letter. This letter is written to Christians, people who already claim faith in Jesus. And the, and the author says, do not reject the one who speaks. People who had professed faith in Jesus, they were facing persecution and temptation to reject him. This is not a call to salvation, but it is a call to enduring faith. The author of Hebrews says, if you reject him, then your salvation was not true to begin with. Because you will surely surrender the same punishment that the Israelites did. You will surely uh, suffer the same punishment as those who never accepted Jesus for their salvation. They never professed faith in Jesus. If you reject him when times get tough, then you don't really trust him when the goings are easy. For those who profess Christianity and then turn away, judgment is sure. For those who profess Christianity and then turn away, judgment is sure. Let me say that another way. For every person in this room, if we ever turn away from our faith, then our judgment is sure. We're going to keep reading. Pick it up in verse 26. His voice shook the earth at that time. Well, now that's referring to when God spoke at Mount Sinai. The whole mountain shook. So his voice shook the earth at that time. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. So right here, I've got this highlighted. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. In your Bibles, hopefully the sentence is in bold letters. That's because this is a quote from the Old Testament. Surprise, surprise, right? The author of Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament. We've seen that time and time again here. There should also be a footnote directing you where to look. Well, that's Haggai 2.6. So this quote comes from Haggai during uh, the, the post-exilic period. And we spent all of last year going through the post-exilic texts. So let me just kind of remind you of where this comes in that time frame. The Israelites had come back from exile, and they began to rebuild the temple. They finished the foundation of the temple, and they had a huge celebration. Then they began to, to build their own houses, and they forgot to finish the temple. God spoke to Haggai and told him to go to the governor and to the priest and and not so gently, remind them to rebuild the temple. Then when the temple was done, it was much smaller than the temple that Solomon had built and this, the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. This new temple was much smaller than that one. Then God spoke again through Haggai. Once more, in a little while, do I have this quote up here? I don't remember. I do. Once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, the Lord of armies, or says the Lord of armies. So now that we understand where this quote comes from, let's see what the author of Hebrews says. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Right? In case you missed it, God promised 
that all of these other earthly kingdoms and nations and riches and comforts and idols, they will either be removed and destroyed or they will come and serve God. Those are the options. Destroyed or serve God. Obviously, the idols are going to be destroyed. Those who reject to follow God will be destroyed. But those who will come and serve him will come and serve him. All of these nations, all of these kingdoms, all of these riches, all of these comforts will come and serve God. What is not shaken, right? It says the removal of what can be shaken. That is created things. But then what cannot be shaken? That's Mount Zion, God's future eternal kingdom. In Haggai, God promises to fill this house with glory. This is the promise that his presence will once again come to the earth and he will reign in power over the whole world. His kingdom, God's kingdom, God's promised future kingdom cannot be shaken. And then speaking of this unshakable kingdom, we pick up in verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. See, though it is God's kingdom, it will be those who have placed their faith in Jesus who will inherit it and rule with Jesus. Let us be thankful, he says. Let us be thankful because through our faith, our inheritance is sure. We are not fearful. We're not fearful of those who threaten us. We're not complainers when things don't go the way we think they should. We're not worriers when we are unsure. Instead, let us be thankful because the kingdom we will inherit cannot be destroyed. If we lose sight of that future, if we lose sight of Mount Zion, if we lose sight of what Jesus has done for us, then the temptation to reject him and turn away from him comes. So we focus on Mount Zion. We focus on that promised future kingdom. And then we can be thankful. And for those who are contemplating rejection, the author reminds them, our God is a consuming fire. When you reject Jesus, there is nowhere to hide from his wrath. There is no escape from his judgment. Every summer, we hear about these raging wildfires in the western part of our country. And the images that we see from these wildfires are truly tragic. These wildfires will eat anything and everything in their path. They don't care if it's a squirrel's nest or a multi-million dollar mansion. If it's in the path of the fire, it gets consumed by the fire. God's wrath is even more devastating for those who reject Jesus. So do not reject the one who speaks, for there is no escape from God's consuming fire of judgment. So we've come to our point of, uh, of application. Right? We always get our application from our definition of a, of a disciple, which we get from Matthew 4.19. And then our three indicators of a disciple are knowing, being, and doing. Right? So our first, well, these are the same application points we had last week because it's a continuation of last week's sermon. First application point is to know where you are. Last week's sermon was part one of this warning, and unfortunately, neither the podcast or YouTube recorded it, but in that text, we were introduced to the concept of Mount Zion versus Mount Sinai. Right? Are you still at Mount Sinai, living under the Old Covenant, trying to earn your righteousness or atone for your own sins? Under the Old Covenant, we are all guilty. Under the Old Covenant, we all deserve death and eternal punishment because we cannot earn our righteousness. We cannot atone for our sins. Or are you at Mount Zion? Through faith in Jesus' substitutionary atonement, we can have access to God's heavenly, perfect, eternal kingdom. Jesus has atoned for our sins and declared that we are righteous. 
Place your faith in him and be at peace with the almighty, righteous, and holy judge. Under the new covenant, we are no longer enemies of God, but we are sons and daughters of God. Our B application is to be focused on Mount Zion. This is the kingdom that cannot be shaken. It is what Christians look to as God's future promise. Jesus has paid for our entry into God's eternal kingdom. And it is by focusing on this future, eternal, perfect kingdom that we can endure any temptation to turn away from him now. No matter what is causing this temptation, no matter what your idol is, no matter uh, uh, how severe the persecution is, it all pales in comparison when we focus on our eternal destination. And our due application is do not reject the one who speaks. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, waiting for that generation to die off because they didn't trust in God's promise. For us, it is Jesus' blood that speaks from Calvary. He died because we are guilty. But his blood cries out, Holy for all who believe in him. So do not reject him. Even though you may have professed faith in Jesus many years or many decades ago and lived as a Christian for almost your whole life, if you reject him, then you were never really saved to begin with. And as I've said several times throughout this series, a faith that saves is a faith that endures. So if you have true saving faith, then your faith will endure. Focus on Mount Zion. Keep our eyes pointed in that direction. Focus on God's promises. The temptation to turn away fades away. Show your faith in Jesus, or show that your faith in Jesus is true by holding on to your faith. Do not reject the one who speaks. Let us pray. God, again, we pray that the truth that is in your word will impact us, will convict us of our sins. Lord, we pray that the truth that is in your word will show us the truth of your salvation. God, I pray that all of us in this room will continually, constantly place our faith in you, follow you in your will. God, I pray that you will help us to follow you in all that we do. Help us to trust in you and to stay focused on your future promises. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we've come to our point of response, and you can respond right where you're seated. You can come to the front and pray at the cross, or you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit VictoryBaptistHopeMills.com or Facebook.com slash VBCHopeMills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.